chapter nine of colonial folkways by charles mclean andrews this librivox recording is in the public domain colonial travel the vast body of colonists stayed at home they lived quiet and uneventful lives little disturbed by the lust for travel and seldom interrupted by journeys from their place of abode they were of course always those whose business took them from one colony to another or over the sea to the west indies or to england there were the thousands north and south who at one time or another went from place to place in an effort to improve their condition and finally there were the new englanders the germans and the scotch-irish who in ever-increasing numbers wandered westward towards the uplands and the frontier led on by that unconquerable restlessness which always seizes upon settlers in a new land of these the most enterprising wanderers and the forerunners of the tourists of to-day were the voyagers overseas to england the continent and the west indies for business education health and pleasure many who went to england on colonial employment or for education took advantage of the opportunity to see the sights or to make a grand tour of the continent one of the earliest of new englanders to visit the continent was john checkley of boston who studied at oxford and travelled in europe before seventeen ten another was thomas bullfinch whose father wrote to him in paris in seventeen twenty i am glad of your going there it being i doubt not for your good though somewhat chargeable elizabeth wife of colonel thomas jones who went abroad in seventeen twenty eight for her health had one of her husband's london correspondents look after her provide her with money arrange for her baggage and purchase what was needful she stayed for a time in london where she consulted sir hans sloane went to bath where she took the waters and was gone from home nearly two years lawrence went to england in seventeen forty nine a nine weeks voyage to study the conditions of trade and travelled on horseback to manchester birmingham worcester and other towns where he was entertained by merchants to whom he had letters or with whom he did business the many virginians randolphs carters and others who were at gray's inn or the middle temple probably travelled elsewhere to some extent while of the south carolinians who visited europe ralph izard went to dijon geneva florence rome naples and strasbourg charles carroll of maryland was away from home at his studies and on his travels for sixteen years living at st omer in france studying law in england visiting the low countries and even planning to go to berlin which he did not reach however partly for lack of time and partly because he heard that the accommodations were bad and the roads were infested with banditti many members of the baltimore family travelled widely copley the painter in seventeen seventy four went to rome marseilles boucher speaks of a gentleman clergyman in virginia who had made the grand tour and was exceedingly instructive and entertaining in his conversation and doubtless there were many others who made trips to foreign cities but whose travels remained unrecorded 
on the other hand members of english and scottish families were often widely scattered throughout the colonial world and travellers from the british isles would occasionally go from place to place in america visiting their relatives trying new business openings or seeking recovery of their health those who visited only the british isles were very numerous the voyage from the colonies was not ordinarily difficult though the dangers of the north atlantic and inconveniences on shipboard in those days were sometimes very serious we had everything washed off our decks wrote one who had just arrived in england and was once going to stove all our water and throw our guns and part of our cargo overboard to lighten the ship four days and nights at one time under a reef mainsail our decks never dry from the time we left cape henry but despite the difficulties ships were constantly coming and going and ample provision for passengers was made the trip from london to boston sometimes lasted only twenty-six days and five weeks to the capes was considered a fine passage chalkley the quaker was eight weeks sailing from land's end to virginia and peckover nine weeks and five days from london to new york an irish traveller was forty-two days from limerick to the same city sailing by the southerly route and into the trades made a longer voyage but a pleasanter one and those who were able to pay well for their cabins and to take extra provisions were in comfort compared with the servants and other emigrants whose experiences below decks aft in the steerage during stormy and protracted voyages must have been harrowing in the extreme there was scarcely a merchant ship but took on passengers going one way or the other and of the life on board we have many accounts hundreds of colonists went to the west indies to search for employment to investigate commercial opportunities to visit their plantations for there were many who owned plantations in the islands or merely to enjoy the pleasures of the trip the voyage which was in any case a comparatively short one varied slightly according to the port of departure and the route it usually occupied two weeks from the northern colonies david mendez thought a trip of twenty-nine days from newport to jamaica a very dismal and melancholy passage but another rhode islander in seventeen fifty two estimated a trip to the bahamas and back including the time necessary for selling and purchasing cargoes at from two to three and a half months in virginia it was customary to sail from norfolk the centre of that colony's trade with the west indies travel from one continental colony to another merely for pleasure was not of frequent occurrence as far as the colonists themselves were concerned it was more common for men and women from the south and the west indies to visit the north to recover their health and to enjoy the cooler climate than it was for the northerners to go southward william bird the third and his wife planned to travel in the north in seventeen sixty three and in seventeen seventy thirty-two people from south carolina went to philadelphia new york newport and boston either as invalids or as tourists men on business were constantly moving about from colony to colony visitors from england scotland and the west indies made long journeys and were often lavishly entertained as they passed from town to town with letters of introduction from one official or merchant to another james burkitt of antigua 
travel from portsmouth to the chesapeake in seventeen fifty and the record of his journey is a document of rare value in social history lowbridge knight of bristol went from georgia to quebec in seventeen sixty four the travels of george whitefield the preacher peter calm the swedish professor thompson the s p g missionary and burnaby the anglican clergyman are well known in seventeen sixty four to seventeen sixty five lord adam gordon spent fifteen months going from antigua through the colonies to montreal and quebec returning by way of new england to new york whence he sailed for england in seventeen seventy sir william draper made the tour with a party consisting of his nephew his nephew's wife and a mrs beresford the visit of these two titled britishers made a considerable stir in american society and was duly chronicled in the papers the impression made by lord adam and others may be inferred from mrs Bergwin's remarks to her sister in my last i was going to tell you about the great people we had in town wilmington really a collection of as ugly ungenteel men as i've seen four in number lord adam is tall slender of the spectre kind entirely captain macdonnell a highlander very sprightly the other two are americans just come from england where they have been educated both very rich which will no doubt make amends for every defect in mr izzard and wormley travellers in the early part of the century were obliged to go chiefly by water and they continued to use this method in the colonies south of pennsylvania in which the wide rivers bays and swamps rendered the land routes difficult and dangerous at all times indeed the waterways were quicker and less fatiguing particularly in the case of long journeys the travellers used the larger vessels ships pinks barks brigs brigantines snows and belanders for ocean voyages and frequently for coastwise transportation from colony to colony for coastwise and west india trade the commoner colonial craft in use were shallops sloops and schooners of which those built in new england were the best known bermuda sloops or sloops built after the bermuda model which were prime sailors and often engaged in the colonial carrying trade were common in the south for passage up and down inland waters such as the hudson river and chesapeake bay and for supplying the big merchant ships in southern waters sloops were the rule rafts contrived for carrying lumber and partly loaded before launching with timber so framed as to be almost solid were floated down the rivers for ordinary purposes for transporting wood lumber tobacco rice indigo and naval stores on shallow inland watercourses the colonists used various kinds of flat boats each with its boss or patroon and often carrying mainsail and jib for sailing before the wind for short distances they used dinghies yawls and longboats as well as canoes fashioned in many sizes and shapes either dugouts or light craft made of cedar and cypress propelled by paddles or oars and in some cases fitted with forts and steps for masts and some even with cabins and forecastles flat-bottomed fall-boats were used for freighting and passenger travel on the connecticut river above hartford but they had no sleeping accommodations and passengers had to put up for the night at taverns along the route such wealthy planters as the carters on the rappahannock had family boats with four and six oars and awnings the customs officials at all the large ports had 
rowboats and barges some of these craft were handsomely painted and at new york for example carried sails awnings a coxswain and bargemen in livery as the colonists made little provision for the improvement of navigation shipwrecks were of all too frequent occurrence vessels ran ashore grounded on sandbars or went to pieces on shoals and reefs many lighthouses were built between seventeen sixteen and seventeen seventy five chiefly a brick and from fifty to one hundred and twenty feet high but the lights were poor and unreliable the earliest beacon showed oil lamps in a lantern formed of close-set window sashes the most important early lights were in boston harbor off newport on sandy hook on cape henry in middle bay island charleston and on tybee island savannah and toward the end of the period in portsmouth harbor and at halifax the boston light had a glazed cage roofed with copper and supported on a brick arch the lamps had to be supplied with oil two or three times in the night and even though they were snuffed every hour the glass was never free from smoke not until the lighthouse at halifax was erected in seventeen seventy two was a better system adopted in many of the more important and dangerous channels as at the eastern end of long island sound in the north carolina inlets and among the bars of the southern rivers buoys were placed often at private expense and everywhere pilots were required for the larger vessels entering new london new york and other harbors passing through the capes of virginia navigating roanoke and ocracock inlets going up from tybee to savannah and sometimes on the more dangerous reaches of the rivers as population increased and settlement was extended farther and farther westward from the region of coastwise navigation to areas not easily reached even from the rivers the colonists were forced to depend more and more upon travel by land trails were widened into tote roads and bridle paths and these in turn into carriage roads until they grew into highways connecting towns with towns and colonies with colonies the process of developing this vast system of pathways through the back country was slow expensive and very imperfect nothing but sheer necessity could have compelled men to drive these roads through the dense forests and tangled undergrowth across marshes and over rocky hills nothing else could have made them endure the arduous and dangerous riding through the howling wilderness as the colonists themselves called it particularly in the south and the back country where the roads ran always through lonely woods the menace of treacherous ground falling trees high river banks and dangerous fords were real to every traveller all the records of these early journeys refer to the ever-present danger from the accidents and injuries of highway travel in the south guides were particularly necessary for to miss one's way was a harrowing and dangerous experience but necessity won the day tremendous advances were made in the eighteenth century when the need of more rapid and extended communication by land became imperative and the postal service in particular was demanding better facilities the colonies now made strenuous efforts to improve their roads increase the number of their ferries and build causeways and bridges wherever possible new england soon became a network of roads and highways with main routes connecting the important towns country roads radiating from junction points and lanes pent roads and private ways leading to outlying sections philadelphia became the terminus of such roads from the country behind it as those running from lancaster york reading and the susquehanna 
from baltimore alexandria falmouth and richmond roads ran westward and joined the great wagon and cattle thoroughfare which stretched across maryland and virginia by way of york the monocacy winchester and stanton to the indian country of the catawbas cherokees and chickasaws the great intercolonial highways which were also used as post roads ran from portsmouth to savannah starting from portsmouth in seventeen sixty the traveller would first make his way over an excellent piece of smooth hard gravelled road available for stage carriage or horse southward to the merrimac which he would cross on a sailing ferry and thence proceed by way of ipswich to boston william barrell started on this trip by stage in august seventeen sixty six but finding the vehicle too crowded for warm weather got out at ipswich and finished the journey in a chaise from boston one would have the choice of four ways of going to new haven one by way of providence to new london a second by way of providence bristol and newport a troublesome journey involving three ferry crossings a third over the old bay road to springfield and thence south through hartford and meriden and a fourth much used by connecticut people diagonally through the northeastern part of the colony crossing the dangerous gwine bog and setucket rivers and reaching new haven by way of either hartford or middletown at springfield if the traveller wished he could continue westward to kinderhook and albany along a road used by traders and the militia or at hartford he could take through northwestern connecticut one of the newest and worst roads in new england to be known later as the albany turnpike lord adam gordon who passed over this road in going from albany to hartford in seventeen sixty five described that section which ran through the green woods from norfolk to simsbury as the worst road i have seen in america and the colony itself so far agreed in seventeen fifty eight as to consider it ill-chosen and unfit for use and not sufficiently direct and convenient though efforts were made to repair it the road remained for years very crooked and encumbered with fallen trees once he had reached new haven the traveller would find that the road to new york which stretched along the sound still required about two days of hard riding or driving these connecticut roads had indeed a bad reputation the traveller's progress was interrupted by troublesome and even dangerous ferries and he frequently had to ride over much soft rocky and treacherous ground mrs knight described their terrors in seventeen o four peckover says in seventeen forty three that he had abundance of very rough stony uneven roads burkitt in seventeen fifty calls parts of them most intolerable and most miserable and beryl on old sorrel was nearly worn out by them sixteen years later though kyler of new york who went over them to rhode island in seventeen fifty seven in a curricle or two-horse chair failed to complain of his journey his good nature may be due to the fact that he went for a wife a very agreeable young lady with a gentle fortune quincy preferred to take boat from new york to boston rather than face the inconveniences of these notorious roads many travellers took a sloop from newport or new london and by going to stirling or oyster bay in order to avoid the pine barrens in the centre of long island and proceeding thence to new york they not only saved fifty miles but also had a better road there was a ferry from norwalk to huntington but that was chiefly for those who desired to go to long island without taking the roundabout journey through new york the traveller might go to albany from new york either by sloop or by road preferably along the eastern bank if he were going southward he might select one of three ways he could cross to paulus hook now jersey city by ferry or could go to perth amboy by sloop through the kill van call 
and staten island sound or by ferrying to staten island he could traverse the northern end of the island and take a second ferry to elizabeth port once on new jersey soil he would find two customary routes to philadelphia one by road to new brunswick and bordentown and down the delaware by water the other by the same road to bordentown thence by land to burlington and across the river by boat in seventeen seventy a stage company offered to make the trip in two days and thus rendered it possible for a new york merchant to spend two nights and a day in philadelphia on business and be back in five days a rapid trip for the period unless one were going into the back country by way of lancaster and york southwestward or from lancaster or reading northwest to fort augusta now sunbury and the west branch there was but one road which he could take in leaving philadelphia it ran by way of chester along the delaware crossed the brandywine toll bridge to wilmington and ran on to christiana bridge the starting point for maryland and the chesapeake as well as the delivery centre for goods shipped from philadelphia for transfer to the eastern and western shores here the road divided one branch went down the eastern shore to chestertown from which point the traveller might cross the bay to annapolis the other rounded the head of the bay crossed the susquehanna near port deposit and so ran on to joppa baltimore and annapolis burkitt tells of passing over the susquehanna in january on the ice and describes how the horses were led across and the party followed on foot with the exception of two women who sat on ladders and were drawn over by two men who slipped off their shoes and run so fast that we could not keep way with them from annapolis the traveller could go directly to alexandria by way of upper marlborough or he could take a somewhat more southerly route to piscataway creek and thence across the potomac by ferry until he reached the road from alexandria to richmond and proceeded southward by way of dumfries and fredericksburg from fredericksburg and falmouth a road ran to winchester through ashby's gap and was much used for hauling supplies northwest from the stores there and for bringing down flour and iron from the farms and zane's ironworks in the shenandoah from which one one might go directly to williamsburg cross the james at jamestown by the hog island ferry and continue by a rough road through nansman county skirting west of the dismal swamp to edenton or he might cross the james farther down the peninsula at newport or hampton go to norfolk by sloop and thence continue south on the other side of the swamp by way of north river and southwest through the albemarle counties to the same destination another road which ran through petersburg and suffolk was sometimes used the travelling and postal routes south of annapolis were much less fixed than those in the north for transit by water was as frequent as by land and the possible combinations of land and water routes were many and varied according to the regulations of seventeen thirty eight which for the first time established a settled mail service from the north to williamsburg and edenton the post rider met the philadelphia courier at the susquehanna rode thence to annapolis crossed the potomac to new post the plantation of governor spotswood the deputy postmaster-general on the rappahannock just below fredericksburg and ended his trip at williamsburg whence the stage carried the mail to edenton by way of hog island ferry and nansman courthouse the uncertainties of the eastern shore postal connections as late as seventeen sixty one can be judged from a letter which john shaw wrote in that year you'll observe he says how difficult it is to get a letter from you that post-office at annapolis being a grave of all letters to this side of the bay i am sending this by way of kent island and am in hopes it will get sooner to you than yours did to me 
from edenton there was but a single road which ran as directly as possible to charleston but nevertheless it was long arduous and slow there were many rivers to be crossed including a five-mile ferry across albemarle sound detours to be made around the wide mouths of the pamlico and the noose and much low and wet ground to be avoided frederick jones took six days to go from williamsburg to new bern shep records how he was delayed at edenton four days because the ferryman had allowed his negroes to go off with the boat on a pleasure excursion of their own an indulgence which showed that even after the revolution travellers in that section were few and far between from new bern to the cape fear or wilmington was not a difficult journey for peter dubois accomplished it on horseback in seventeen fifty seven with no other comment than an expression of satisfaction at the fried chicken and eggs that he had for breakfast and the duck and fried hominy that he ate for dinner from wilmington after ferrying over to negro head point with bad boats and very poor service in seventeen sixty four the traveller might continue by a lonely desolate and little frequented way to georgetown and charleston it was a noteworthy event in the history of the colonies when the first post stage was established in seventeen thirty nine south of edenton and postal communication was at last opened all the way from portsmouth and boston through the principal towns and places in new york pennsylvania maryland virginia and north carolina to charleston and even thence by the occasional services of private individuals to georgia and points beyond at charleston which was the distributing centre for the far south the road branched and one line went back through dorchester orangeburg courthouse and ninety six to the towns of the lower cherokee a route used by caravans and indian traders another turned off at dorchester fort fort moore and fort augusta on the upper savannah and a third curved away from the coast to savannah to avoid the rivers and sounds of beaufort county in seventeen sixty seven the mail was carried from savannah to augusta and on to pensacola by way of st mark's and apalachicola but the journeys were dangerous and sometimes the postman could not get through on account of raids by the creek indians land travel before seventeen seventy had become very common even in the south lawrence wrote to john rutherford of cape fear i believe you are the greatest traveller in america you talk of a four hundred mile ride as any other man would one of forty i hope these frequent long journeys will not prejudice your health lawrence himself usually went by boat to visit his plantations in georgia a single day's journey instead of two by horseback but in seventeen sixty nine he went off for seven weeks almost a thousand miles through the woods to visit his up-river properties governor montague in seventeen sixty eight went all the way from boston to charleston by land and the anglican missionaries travelled long distances in maryland virginia and north carolina to visit their parishioners and baptize the children merchants are known to have journeyed far to collect their debts allison speaks of going from forty to ninety miles from house to house on collecting tours merchants who sold their goods in the lumping way rode up and down the river towns and plantations in their efforts to dispose of their consignments and itinerant peddlers with their horses and packs wandered on from place to place south as well as north retailing their wares though journeying by land was at all times an arduous experience it was particularly difficult during heavy rains and freshets in the winter season and when forest fires were burning the winters were as variable then as, as now often there was no ice before february and many a green christmas is recorded in other years the season would be one of prolonged cold the winter of seventeen seventy one to seventeen seventy two having nineteen plentiful effusions of snow checkley records a frost in boston on june fourteenth seventeen thirty five and a snowstorm on the thirtieth of october in the same year 
in december seventeen fifty two the temperature in charleston dropped from seventy degrees to twenty four degrees in a single day and there were many winters in the south when frost injured the crops and killed the orange blossoms once in the winter of seventeen thirty eight no mail reached williamsburg for six weeks on account of the bad weather mrs manigault of charleston notes in her diary that the burial of her daughter in february had to be postponed on account of the deep snow rivers were crossed at fords whenever possible but ferries were introduced from the first on the main lines of travel all sorts of craft were utilized for crossing canoes for passengers flatboats and scows for horses and carriages and sailing vessels chiefly sloops where the crossings were longer and therefore more dangerous rope ferries were necessary wherever the current was swift though they were always an annoying obstruction on navigable rivers at much travel places two boats were frequently required one on each bank the ferryman was summoned usually by hallowing by ringing a bell or by building a fire in the marshes licenses for ferries were issued and rates were fixed by the assembly in the north and the, the county court in the south passage was ordinarily free to the post-rider and to public officials and in connecticut to children going to school worshippers going to church and sometimes to militiamen on their way to musters bridges over small streams were built before the end of the seventeenth century but those over the larger rivers were late in construction because as a rule the difficulties involved were too great for the colonial builders to cope with many of these bridges were the result of private enterprise and toll was taken by permission of assembly or court first they were always built of timbers in the form of geometry work with causeways the raising of a bridge in new england was a public event at which the people of the surrounding country appeared to offer their services bridges constructed over such swift rivers as the quine bog in connecticut had to be renewed many times as they were frequently carried away by ice or freshets stone bridges could be built only where the distances were short and the water was comparatively shallow peter calm mentions two stone bridges on the way from trenton to philadelphia there was a very good wooden bridge over the charles river between boston and cambridge and others were built over the mystic the quinnipiac the harlem the brandywine christiana creek and many of the upper waters and smaller streams in the south in the early days riding on horseback was the chief mode of travelling on land but in the seventeenth century wheeled vehicles appeared in virginia and to a limited extent in the north though for the purpose of carting rather than for driving hadley in massachusetts had only five chaises in the town before seventeen ninety five the usual styles were the two-wheeled and four-wheeled chaises with or without tops the riding-chair sulky and solar chair which were little more than chaise bodies without tops the curricle phaeton gig calash coach and chariot sedan chairs could be hired by the hour in charleston and stage coaches were in use in all the colonies four-wheeled chaises drawn by two horses could be transformed into one-horse chairs by taking off the front wheels but coaches and chariots were generally drawn by four six and even eight horses chaises curricles and phaetons were the rule in the north and coaches and chariots in virginia and south carolina yet chairs and chaises were common enough in the south and henry vassal of massachusetts had his coach and chariot as well as his chaise and curricle many of the coaches and chariots were very ornate neatly carved handsomely gilded lined with dove-coloured blue and crimson cloth and sometimes furnished with large front glass plates in one piece with the arms of the owner on the door panels the harness was bright with brass or silver gilt metalwork and ornamented with bells and finery and coach and horses were adorned with plumes equipages of such magnificence appeared in virginia as early as the first quarter of the eighteenth century chaises were more sombre though occasionally set off to advantage 
with brass hubs and wheel-boxes though vehicles in harness were at first usually imported from england chaise-making in the north gradually developed into an industry and chairs and chaises and phaetons were frequently exported to southern ports beverly once rode to england for a set of second-hand harness from the royal mews under the impression that some of them were very little the worse for wear but when the consignment arrived he was greatly disappointed to discover that the harness was sad trash not worth anything in the middle and new england colonies people usually travelled in winter in sleighs these vehicles are described by burkett as standing upon two pieces of wood that lies flat on the ground like a north of england sled the forepart turning up with a bent to slide over stones or any little rising and shod with smooth plates of iron to prevent their wearing away too fast we have now described in somewhat cursory fashion the leading characteristics and contrasts of colonial life in the eighteenth century the description is manifestly not complete for many interesting phases of that life have been left out of account little or nothing has been said of trade and business money newspapers the postal service prose and poetry wit and humour and the lighter side of government politics and the professions to have made the account complete something of each of these aspects of colonial life should have been included but there are limitations of space and of material extensive as is the evidence available regarding the weightier aspects of early american life there is but a slender residue from the vicissitudes of history to throw any sufficient light upon some of the habits practices and daily concerns of the colonists in the ordinary routine of their existence our forefathers on this continent were not given to talking about themselves to gossiping on paper and in print however much they may have gossiped in their daily intercourse and to recording for future generations everyday matters that must have seemed to them trivial and commonplace they have left us only a few letters of an intimate character few diaries that are more than meagre chronicles and scarcely any picturesque anecdotes or narrations that have illustrative value in an attempt to reconstruct the daily life of the colonists perhaps the greatest omission of all in a book of this character is the failure to speak of mental attitudes and opinions what did the colonists think of each other of the mother country and of the foreign world that lay almost beyond their ken one may readily discover contrasts in government commerce industry agriculture habits of life and social relations but it is not so easy for us nowadays to penetrate the colonist's mind to fathom his motives and to determine his likes and dislikes fears and prejudices jealousies and rivalries in matters of opinion the colonists except in new england were not accustomed to disclose their inner thoughts though it is not at all unlikely that large numbers of them had no inner thoughts to disclose moreover the people were of many origins many minds many varieties of temper and grades of mental activity and as was to be expected they differed very widely in their ideas on religion conduct and morals they were puritans quakers and anglicans they were english french germans and scots and they were dwellers in seaports and inland towns on small farms and large plantations in the tidewater in the up-country along the frontier under temperate or semi-tropical skies as a consequence it is not to be wondered at that to the new englander the well-known hospitality good breeding and politeness of the southerners seemed little more than a sham in the face of their inhumanity and barbarity towards servants and slaves their looseness of morals and their fondness for horse-racing drinking and gambling even quincy himself no ill-natured critic could find in virginia no courteous gentleman and generous hosts but only knaves and sharpers given to practices that were knavish and trickish Fithian was warned that when he went to virginia he would go into the midst of many dangerous temptations gay company frequent entertainment little practical devotion no remote pretension to heart religion 
daily examples in men of the highest quality of luxury intemperance and impiety little more exact on the other hand was a southerner's opinion of new england to him a land of pretended holiness and disagreeable self-righteousness he doubted the willingness of the new englander to carry out his promises or to live up to his resolves he dubbed him a saint criticized his yankee shrewdness and charged him with business methods that were little short of thievery these sentiments were not confined however to the people of the south the quakers also had a deep-seated antipathy for new england in part because they remembered with bitterness and reproach the old-time treatment of their forerunners there stephen collins of philadelphia once called the merchants of boston deceitful canting presbyterian deacons beekman of new york voiced a widespread feeling when he charged the men of connecticut with selling goods underweight a cursed fraud and added that seven-eighths of the people i have credited in new england has proved to me such darned ungrateful cheating fellows that i am now almost afraid to trust any man in connecticut though he be well recommended from others often the lack in the north of open-handed hospitality and a polite demeanour towards strangers called forth remark one traveller wrote that the hospitality of the gentlemen of carolina to strangers is a thing not known in our more northern region and john london of wilmington said of new haven where he lived for some time that in general the manners of this place has more of bluntness than refinement and want those little attentions that constitute real politeness and are so agreeable to strangers such criticism was not unknown from new englanders themselves for dr johnson once said that punderson's failure as a clergyman was due to his want of politeness and roger woolcott named censoriousness detraction and drinking too much cider as the leading blemishes of connecticut the fondness for innuendo and disparagement which these citations disclose was a characteristic colonial weakness virginians would speak of the ladies of philadelphia as homely hard-favoured and sour dwellers in charleston would deem themselves vastly superior to their brethren of north carolina the old settlers of boston philadelphia and charleston had little liking for the immigrant germans and scotch-irish were glad to get them out of the tide-water region into the country beyond and looked upon them throughout the colonial period as inferior types of men a spurious race of mortals as a virginian called the scotch-irish dislikes such as these cut deeply and found ample expression at all times but were never more freely and harshly stated than in the years preceding the revolution the stamp act congress which was a gathering of a few high-minded men was no real test of the situation the non-importation movement as the first organized effort at common action against england on the part of the colonists as a whole and the first movement that really tested the temper of every grade and every section made manifest to a degree unknown before the apparently hopeless disaccord that existed among the colonists everywhere on the eve of their combined revolt from the mother country but this disagreement was more the inevitable accompaniment of the growth of national consciousness on the part of the american colonists than it was the manifestation of permanent and irreconcilable differences in their political economic and social life to the early colonists must be given the credit of having laid a broad and stable foundation for the future united states of america and their subsequent history has been the indisputable record of a growing national solidarity even the civil war which at first sight may seem conclusive contradiction is to be regarded as in its essence the inevitable solution of hitherto discordant elements in the democracy which had their beginnings far back in the complex spiritual and social inheritance of the early colonial generations from the vantage point of the twentieth century with its manifold legacy from the past and its ample promise for the future 
it has been interesting to glance backward for a moment upon colonial times to see once again the life of the people in all its energy simplicity and vivid colouring with its crude and boisterous pleasures and its stern and uncompromising beliefs those forefathers of ours faced their gigantic tasks bravely and accomplished them sturdily because they had within themselves the stuff of which a great nation is made differences among the colonists there indubitably were but these after all were merely superficial distinctions of ancestral birth and training beyond which shone the same common vision and the same broad and permanent ideals of freedom of life opportunity and worship to the realization of these ideals the colonial folk dedicated themselves and so endured end of chapter nine end of colonial folkways by charles mclean andrews